0: Five, four, three, two, one. Lift off of a thousand knots.
1: Welcome to Doing Business in the Solar System, where we talk about finding opportunities in the universe. This is a SpaceQ podcast, and your host is Elizabeth Howell. NASA hopes to expand its human spaceflight program to the moon in the 2020s and perhaps then to Mars. An international consortium is working to make this push into the solar system as efficient as possible. One key aspect is in-situ resource utilization, or ISRU. You might hear that a few times today. Living off the land, proponents say, may make it cheaper to perform exploration because it means not having to bring all the supplies with you. The Colorado School of Mines has done numerous studies concerning ISRU, and on the line with us today is angel Abud Aboud-Madrid, Director of the Center for Space Resources at the Colorado School of Mines. He's also Director of the Space Resources Graduate Program at the school. Welcome.
0: Hello, Elizabeth. How are you?
1: I'm doing great. How about you?
0: Just fine. <laughs>
1: (laughs) Thank you for coming on and before we get started I wanted to really frame what the school does because I followed you a lot over the years and I know that you happen to do a lot of research on ISRU so can you kind of talk about your latest research and how that might help with NASA's Artemis program for the moon in the future?
0: Sure yes uh, you you said it well Uh, we have been doing a research on space resources at the school since the late 1990s for almost more than 20 years and we also have now a uh, graduate program that is educating scientists and engineers entrepreneurs economists and policy analysts on this field but in the aspect of research we pretty much cover what's called in the extraction industry on earth or in space uh, all, all aspects of the of the value chain which means, what we do is, is research on how to identify the resources. What's called prospecting. That means we take data from uh, spacecraft that are going around the moon or Mars or asteroids or or or, uh, or, or some of the the uh, rocks that have been. Uh, found on, on the moon and brought to earth. And we try to identify what resources are there that can be of use to us. Uh, the next step, you need to collect that that material. So we worked on excavators and drilling systems on how to do this on different planetary surfaces. The next step is how do you extract the resources from the material that you have collected? So we work on all sorts of chemical systems to extract uh, water and oxygen and metals and uh, and and uh, and and then how do we use those things that we extract for a, a, an application? So space manufacturing: how to make tools and spare parts by using three D printing or advanced manufacturing. Construction: how to make uh, landing pads and roads and berms. Plus all of the infrastructure that goes along. If you're going to have a uh, a space resource uh, 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 production system, wherever you go, so power, communications, transportation. So pretty much we cover the whole gamut of, of activities that are needed to identify, extract, and utilize resources beyond our planet.
1: That's great. And uh, later on in the podcast, I'll be asking you about that at different destinations, such as the Moon and Mars. But before we go to certain spots in the solar system, I wanted to get a little bit of a general sense. When you're trying to assess an environment, if I may put it that generally, whether it be an asteroid or something a bit larger, can you speak about some of the general factors that you're looking for in terms of making that resource useful for space exploration?
0: Yeah, ISRU, as the name says, is is in situ resource utilization, that means you use the resources in the location. So it will depend where you're going and the resources of your destination, the type of uh, uh, activity that you're gonna do there. But in general, uh, when, when we talk about resources being useful for space exploration. The whole point is that you don't have to bring in from Earth that you can utilize resources on site uh, to the so-called living of the land approach. Because launching things from Earth is extremely energy intensive because of the big gravity that we have on Earth. And it's also extremely expensive. Uh, just to give you an idea, I mean, any, any rocket that you send into space, 90% of that rocket is fuel that is required to send us uh, to, to leave the gravity of Earth. And so if you're gonna launch something in low Earth orbit, that's anywhere between three to $5,000 a kilogram. You want to go to the moon, you're talking thirty-five to 50000 You want to go all the way up to Mars, now you're talking in the $300,000 to $500,000 a kilogram. So it's extremely expensive. So if you can reduce that, if you can lower the transportation cost by having resources on site or using those resources to produce propellant, for example, then you're not only lowering the cost, But now you can think about you can carry much larger payloads and that will enhance your exploration wherever you go.
1: So let's go through a few of the different destinations, starting with the moon, because that's the one where everybody is focused for the time being. So one thing that people are often talking about is water ice. And so my first question about that is, how do we know it's there? And then if we can flow on to a second, how do we get it out?
0: Okay, you're right in that the moon, it's uh, right now on, on the crosshairs of the first destination to, to uh, not only extract, but utilize resources. Water, it's definitely been identified as, as one of the most important resources because not only can be used for humans for drinking or for protecting you against radiation or growing plants, but more importantly is because you can split it into hydrogen and oxygen and can be used as a propellant. How do we know that water is there? Interesting enough, it was a paper that came out 60 years ago, almost to the date, on May of 1961, that talked about the possibility of having water on the lunar poles, on the permanently shadow regions that have never seen the light of the sun, extremely cold places that may have uh, trapped the water from comets, from asteroids, uh, and and, and in these very cold spots. But it took a a few more decades to find out and and, and verify that this is the case. This was in the late 1990s, where several missions were sent with a variety of instruments, uh, radar reflectivity or neutron spectrometers or infrared spectrometers, that gave an indication that indeed uh, signals of hydrogen and signals of water were detected in these very dark regions. Uh, Then, finally, uh, the, the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, Orbiter in the uh, 2000s, and not only was able to go there and and map the moon, but the the upper stage that launched ILRO was used to impact one of those craters. For the so for the first time, we could actually see and touch the surface and, and look at the cloud that came out, and detect that indeed water was present anywhere from three to eight percent in in uh, in, in uh, by weight. And so we have confirmation from. Orbit, but also from the impact that was uh, caused by the what's called the L-Cross mission.
1: And then, um, now that we know that it's there, how are we supposed to get it out for use by humans and machines?
0: That's uh, going to be quite a challenge because, like I said, it's uh, it's it's stored as water ice on these very cold regions, and we're talking uh, anywhere from minus two hundred and 20 degrees Celsius or so. Uh, they're dark, so you don't see anything there. There's no no way to see what is going on. So we will have to go down to these places to extract the water. Now even though we know it's there, we do not know in what shape it is. We don't know if it's just in the surface or if it's mixed with the, 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 the lunar dust, what we call the regolith. We don't know how deep it goes or how, how widely it's distributed. So we need to find out, uh, first of all, exactly how it is to then come up with the technology to extract it. If it's on the surface, you just heat it up. The moment it sees the light of the sun, if you just have a reflector, it's going to start sublimating, which means it goes from ice to vapor, and then you can trap it, and then from that you can do an electrolysis and separate it into hydrogen and oxygen, or use it for whatever you want. If it's deeper, you may have to drill, drill with with, with heated systems, so that then you can make it take it out from from where it is mixed with the regolith, the So it will depend on how, how we find that, that water and what shape it is. Uh, and that, that will depend on the technology that we'll use to extract
1: it. Right, and I suppose that it's also is dependent on NASA's Commercial Lunar Payload Services Program, right? That's sending a set of private landers and private uh, rovers, et cetera, to the moon?
0: Yes, uh, much work will need to be done uh, in order to find out uh, what exactly is the state of the water. Uh, the, the the different payloads that are being sent right now is to measure things like uh, geotechnical properties. That means how loose is this dust? You know What is the, the particle size? Uh, what is this compressive strength? That means uh, is it easy to penetrate it? In fact, one of the uh, experiments that we have at the School of Mines will fly on one of these Eclipse missions uh, with Masten systems, Mastin space systems, and will be on the... Um, on the tip of a robotic arm made by Maxar. And we will be measuring with a, with a penetration tool how easy it is to uh, go inside this regolith. Uh, maybe we can find ice, that will be uh, a, a good outcome. Uh, we will measure the particle size. Uh, and, and not just this mission, there will be several of them that will carry instruments to figure out where is the water, how deep it is, um, and, and, and exactly where it is.
1: And then, besides the water, what other resources on the moon may be useful to us uh, for Artemis or other programs?
0: So, when you talk about Artemis, um, it's it's it has different steps. You know, there will be getting the, the next man and the first women, uh, by twenty twenty four or twenty five, by the end of the twenty twenties, a second phase of Artemis will be to have a sustainable presence on, on the moon. When we're talking about being sustainable, then we're going to have to be very resourceful and use as many uh, resources that we can find there for humans to live there. So water is first and foremost it's important again not just for humans but for propellant but oxygen is also very important we can use that for breathing and for uh, uh, it's also a propellant about l- more than 90 80% of the pro- of the weight of the propellant is oxygen the rest will be hydrogen or, or methane so if you can obtain oxygen that will be a very important and interesting enough oxygen can be found anywhere around the moon and on the on this on the uh, lunar regolith you don't have to go to the deep uh, permanently shadowed regions, and so oxygen will be second for sure, or first if we cannot get to the to the bottom of those craters. Uh, then uh, metals; uh, those are important. You can find them. You can use them for tools or spare parts, and they're interesting enough. A byproduct of oxygen extraction systems, and so if you can have metals, you can use them for a variety of of, of, of uses. Uh, then the regolith itself. You don't have to carry all the bricks and mortar to, to, to make landing pads and berms and habitats. Why why not use what you already have there? And in fact, nature has helped us a lot because it's already pulverized the surface of the moon and this very fine dust that then can be used either to extract resources from there or use them to build a variety of things. So all of those things, water, oxygen, metals, uh, uh, the regolith itself. Location its actually a good resource where are we going to put a lunar base where is where we can get the most illumination better communications power uh, so finding those places that are ideal for bases it's, it's quite a resource.
1: Okay. And then uh, water again comes up at Mars, which is another destination that we're talking about sending people, but a little further on, at least the 2030s, maybe the 2040s or so. Of course, there's the old joke that the Mars exploration is always 20 years from now. So bear that in mind as I'm saying this. But in any case, I'm sort of getting the sense that one of the chief challenges is trying to figure out where the water is and just how much there is again. But in this case, it might be kind of underground, right? So can you explain a little bit more about that?
0: Mars, contrary to the moon or asteroids or whatever, has plenty of water. You don't necessarily see it on the surface, although you can actually see it very clearly on the poles. Uh, all the white things that you see on the caps, uh, on the lunar polar caps, are either water ice or mixed with also uh, carbon dioxide, uh, icy carbon dioxide. Uh, obviously, those are pretty extreme places for humans to be there. Uh, in lower latitudes, you can find it a little bit deeper. Uh, there was a mission called Phoenix that landed around 69, 70 degrees north. And that one was able to just scrap the, 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 the surface for a few centimeters and there was water ice. If you go to the lower latitudes, uh, around the 40 degree uh, latitude, you can find it uh, deeper in subsurface glaciers, uh, several meters below that. Uh, and so these, these are these are places where... where uh, NASA uh, and other agencies are planning to have a lunar, uh, a, a Martian base, uh, a more benign place for humans to be there. So if they could actually drill a few meters and encounter large amounts of ice, it would be very useful. Uh, it has been found already uh, from uh, orbiters that there are very thick uh, uh, layers of, 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 uh, of ice, 400, 500 meters in thickness. The difficulty has been to understand how deep they are from the surface if it's a meter or up to 50 meters about 50 meters is the resolution so if we can have much more able spacecraft that can identify exactly how deep it is then you can design drills and excavation systems to get there now if it's not um, water ice, in terms of glaciers you can also extract it from what's called hydrated minerals these are minerals that, that absorb the water is now are part of the, of the mineral they have up to 20% or so of water why not heat them up and, and extract it that way and if you're really thirsty there's water all over the Martian regolith uh, very little 1 to 2% but if you heat it up uh, to 700 degrees Celsius or so you can even extract water from, from the Martian regolith
1: that's wonderful. So there's even more than I imagined, even at the surface. And then, of course, there might be some underground as well. So that is great. And then um, providing we have water, what other resources might be useful for ISRU on
0: Mars? Mars pretty much has uh, everything that I talked about on the moon. It has it has minerals, it has metals, it has water. Um, has, uh, uh, and then from the water, you can obtain hydrogen and oxygen. But what makes it unique and different from the moon is that it has an atmosphere. Thin atmosphere, but still one in which is mostly carbon dioxide. And the moment you have carbon, think about all the things that we can do with them. Uh, Now you have hydrocarbons that can come out of that, plastics in a way. Uh, And not only that, you can extract the oxygen directly from the atmosphere. You don't have to go to the water. And in fact, as you and I are speaking right here, uh, there is a experiment on the surface of Mars, on the Perseverance rovers, that is extracting the very first resource from another planetary body right now. So it's it's pretty much sucking the carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, running it through a fuel cell in reverse, and is being now storing oxygen that at some point can be used for, you know, to breathe or for uh, as a propellant or whatever we need oxygen for. So that's one of the advantages of Mars. It's atmosphere, again, it's thin, but uh, it can be very useful to obtain oxygen, carbon, that can later on be mixed with water and give us methane, ethylene, or anything else that we want to uh, do in terms of hydrocarbons.
1: Okay. And that instrument, I believe, is called MOXIE, right? The one on perseverance?
0: That's exactly right. The MOXIE experiment, yeah.
1: MOXIE experiment. Okay. So people can look that one up. And it is fascinating. And it's just starting. That's the other thing, too. like There'll be a lot more resources and uh, results as uh, time goes on as well. Yeah. it's, It's amazing
0: just to think. That uh, a couple of hundred million miles away from us, this experiment is extracting that resource. Uh, it's it's, it's yeah, this is quite a, a a milestone in the in the field of space resources. <laughs> I must
1: agree with that one. Okay, so besides those main two locations for exploration, the moon and Mars, I want to touch on a few other spots that maybe or maybe not we will be going to in a few decades or so, or at least in our science fiction dreams. And one of those is asteroids. So can you talk about their potential for ISRU for humans?
0: Yes, those amorphous pebbles that are floating around all over the solar system have lots of good resources, and there's plenty of them thousands and not necessarily the ones that are in the asteroid belt between mars and jupiter some of them have been uh, by impacts or or other means they have been pushed to orbits very close to the one that the Earth has around the sun. So these are the called near-Earth asteroids, or NEAs, or near-Earth objects, or NEOs. And they're interesting because they're closer to us than having to go all the way up to the asteroid belt. And these are uh, uh, remnants of the formation of the solar system. They come in different flavors. Um, You can pretty much classify them in three important ones, uh, as we have found out from observing and from Earth. Uh, but also from the thousands of, of meteorites that have fallen on Earth, we, we, we have a pretty good idea of what they're made of. You got the carbonaceous types, as the name says, they have carbon, but also they have water, up to 20 percent of them, hydrated minerals, just like the ones that I was talking about on Mars. You got the silicaceous ones, the stony ones that have uh, nickel and iron. And then you have the metallic ones. These are cores of, of planets, that, of, of objects that were forming as planets, and then they were impacted. And all it was left was the core. So they have very highly concentrated amounts of nickel, of iron, and the platinum group metals, like platinum and iridium, rhodium. Uh, and so they're quite interesting in, from the point of view of, of metals. So you have a variety of them, and they can be quite useful. Uh, because if you get to one of the carbonaceous ones, for example, now you got water in some place that you can use as a gas station. You get the water, you can just heat it up, and now you got steam to propel you, or you can superheat it, and now you have a plasma, and then you can move to some other places. So they're very useful in terms of what you can obtain, again, in situ for further exploration.
1: And then, uh, are there any other locations in the solar system, such as uh, icy moons or anything else that might be useful for ISRU in some point?
0: Yes, pretty much anything that you can find outside Earth is useful. It all depends on the time horizon that we're talking about. And we've been we've been discussing the Moon, asteroids, Mars. This is what we see in our field. That's something that in which we will be able to extract resources in the next twenty or thirty years. Beyond that, there's plenty. Of material, there's water all over the solar system. There is helium three in the atmosphere of Uranus and Neptune. Uh, there are moons, uh, for example, uh, Titan, uh, from from Saturn. That uh, if you just have a bucket there, in, in hydrocarbons rain from the sky, and you can just collect them there. Uh, <laughs> so, so there's there's plenty of resources. It's just that they're a little bit farther away. And at some point, if you're in a mission that may want may require resources to go further out maybe that's a possibility but that's a little bit further out yeah
1: okay now um let's move on to a couple of other aspects of ISRU. and actually as we were booking this interview you were telling me that um you were recently working on or sort of being part of a conference that is focused on space resources would you mind kind of giving me some more insight as to
0: what's going on there Yes, it is happening right now as we speak, just like like extraction of oxygen on Mars. It is it is called the Space Resources Roundtable uh, that this year is also teaming up with the Planetary and Terrestrial Mining Sciences Symposium. Uh, the Space Resources Roundtable is a meeting that we have organized uh, since 1999, which has been 21 years, uh, uh, 20, 20 to 22 years now that we've been organizing it. And uh, it's a a conference that focuses on all aspects of space resources. We just mentioned technology and science, but think about what it takes to extract resources on Earth. It's not just the science, not just the geology or the engineering to get the resources out. You need to know if it's economic. You need to know if it's legal. You need to know what are the environmental aspects of this and the policy aspects of 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 extracting resources. So this is a very multidisciplinary uh, conference in which we bring scientists and space exploration experts, plus lawyers and economists and entrepreneurs and financial analysts that discuss all aspects of how is that we're gonna make space resources possible. So it's gonna run through the whole week, three and a half days of discussing all aspects related to resources beyond Earth.
1: That's wonderful. And will there be any kind of conference papers and materials online where people can view what you were talking about?
0: Yes. Uh, there's a website for the Space Resources Roundtable. It's isruinfo.com, uh, where you can actually look at all the papers since 1999 that have been published. And and, and uh, unique to this one, this conference that is being taking that's taking place virtually, there will be recordings of all the um, all the talks. So that's an extra advantage of this.
1: Well, you know, I've just kind of booked my next few weeks now. I need to go over there and see all the work that you've been doing since the 90s. So uh, excuse me while I go off and do that. But Good. before I get too distracted, I wanted to ask if we can kind of sum up, what are some of the key technologies that we should really be focusing on right now to make the most of our ISRU opportunities in,
0: let's say, the next five or 10 years? What kind of things would you really like? Just like the experiments that I was mentioning that we're doing at School of Mines. Uh, Those are exactly the things that we should be doing. The first thing is, let's find out exactly what resources are there and and, and in what amount, what concentration, how deep. Uh, So that's one of the first things that we will be seeing in the next few years, Uh, remote sensing, uh, getting down to the ground and touching it and seeing how much is there. Then at the same time, we should start developing technologies for extraction of water and metals and oxygen. Uh, and 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 also how to start using them to for construction and manufacturing. This is our thing that we have done on Earth for hundreds of years. So the technology may be very similar, but we, what we should be doing right now is adapting it to a completely different environment. How is that we going to do this on a one-sixth uh, gravity, one-third of a gravity like on Mars? How are we going to do it with this with extreme temperatures in a vacuum, with micrometeorites maybe hitting you or radiation? so how we can adapt the technology that we already know and 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 make it so that it can work in these different planetary surfaces so these are the main things that we should be concentrating uh, at this point elizabeth can i ask and add one more thing that you may want to add
1: okay what's the one more thing
0: well your podcast is called doing business in the solar system mm-hmm. and one thing that listeners should be aware of is that this is the resources not only are going to expand or or enhance our exploration goals but they they're going to make possible commercial activities in space so that we can really expand our economy beyond our planet by lowering transportation on the solar system by being able to refuel satellites or or keep upper stages now floating around with the fuel that we can provide from from earth from from space we're going to enable now a a, a robust economic activity in space so that goes with the the title of your of your podcast
1: All right. Well, thank you very much for your time. It was uh, really nice to have you on the show. And I hope we can speak uh, one time soon. And uh, this is a Cube podcast doing business in the solar system. And your host is Elizabeth Howell.